Welcome to the March 3rd, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll compare the efficacy of autologous stem cell transplant to CAR T-cell therapy for relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Learn more about a novel subtype of hemochromatosis caused by constitutional PIG-A mutations. And discuss the findings from a Phase two trial of obinutuzumab, ibrutinib, and venetoclax in patients with untreated high-risk CLL. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Autologous Transplant versus Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-Cell Therapy for Relapsed DLBCL in Partial Remission by Mezyar Shadman from the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, and colleagues. Approximately 60% of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, respond to initial treatment with rituximab and anthracycline chemotherapy and are considered cured. Unfortunately, those patients who are not cured with first-line therapy often have poor outcomes, and an optimal treatment strategy for this group hasn't been defined to date. The current standard of care for relapsed refractory DLBCL consists of an alternative salvage regimen followed by high-dose chemotherapy and autologous hematopoietic cell transplant, or auto-HCT. While there seems to be universal agreement in proceeding to auto-HCT for patients who achieve a complete remission with salvage chemotherapy, there is no clear consensus for patients who achieve partial remission, since they are also potential candidates for CAR T-cell therapy. CAR T-cells have been a breakthrough in curing even patients who fail auto-HCT, leading to the notion that they could be used as second-line therapy. Early unpublished results from two randomized clinical trials directly comparing auto-HCT with CAR T-cells for DLBCL suggest that CAR T's may offer superior response rates and event-free survival as second-line therapy compared to standard approaches that include auto-HCT. However, there have been no prospective trials comparing the efficacy of these two different forms of cellular therapy for DLBCL patients achieving partial remission after salvage therapy. Moreover, relapsed DLBCL patients are often referred to transplant or cell therapy programs only after starting salvage therapy, and some patients cannot readily access a CAR T-cell center. Thus, the management of this group of DLBCL patients remains a highly relevant clinical question. In the current study, investigators used the registry database from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research to compare the outcomes of DLBCL patients who achieved a partial remission after chemotherapy and were then treated with either auto-HCT or CAR T-cells. This retrospective study included a total of 411 adult patients with DLBCL, high-grade B-cell lymphoma with MYC, and BCL2 and or BCL6 rearrangements, or primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma. The patients had achieved a partial response after the last therapy line, per international working group criteria, and received either an auto-HCT between 2013 and 2019 
or CAR T-cell therapy with Axicel between 2018 and 2019. Progression-free survival, or PFS, served as the primary endpoint and was defined as the time from either auto-HCT or CAR T-cell treatment to relapse or death from any cause. Secondary endpoints included overall survival, the cumulative incidence of non-relapse mortality, the cumulative incidence of relapse progression, and hematopoietic recovery. In terms of patient characteristics, there was no significant difference in age, performance status, and the proportion of patients who had a pretreatment PET scan for disease assessment. Patients in the auto-HCT cohort had received fewer median lines of prior therapy compared to patients in the CAR T-cell cohort, 2 versus 3 respectively. Univariable analysis revealed that the two-year PFS and the rate of 100-day non-relapse mortality were not significantly different between the two cohorts. PFS rates were 52% and 42% in the auto-HCT and CAR T-cell cohorts, respectively. However, consolidation with auto-HCT was associated with a lower risk of relapse or progression, namely 40% versus 53%, and a superior overall survival at two years, 69% versus 47% for the CAR T-cell cohort. The results of multivariable regression analysis also found no significant differences in PFS for the auto-HCT and CAR T-cell cohorts. However, treatment with auto-HCT was again associated with a superior overall survival and significantly lower risk of relapse or progression. 34% of patients from the auto-HCT group and 36% of patients from the CAR T-cell group died during the follow-up. The main cause of death was the primary disease in both treatment groups, accounting for roughly two-thirds of the reported deaths. In the auto-HCT group, other common causes of death included infections and organ failure, while deaths were also attributed to infections, cytokine release syndrome, organ failure, and malignancies in the CAR T-cell group. Study authors concluded that these latest findings support the role of auto-HCT as the standard of care in transplant-eligible patients with relapsed DLBCL in partial remission after salvage therapy. In an accompanying commentary, Prima Lula from Baylor College of Medicine notes that, consistent with the expectations, the study by Shadman and colleagues confirmed that auto-HCT performs well against CAR T-cells in chemosensitive DLBCL. He further notes that the authors successfully recognized and accounted for potential confounding factors in their study by matching disease burden and the median number of prior lines of therapy, as well as performing propensity risk score matched analyses. Even after accounting for these factors, they still demonstrated that auto-HCT is equivalent to CAR T-cells for DLBCL in partial remission after chemotherapy. Thus, Lula concludes that this timely report renews the support for auto-HCT in the second line for chemosensitive DLBCL, and that future studies should focus on refining the indications for both types of curative cellular therapies, which have distinct mechanisms of action. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled Constitutional Pig A Mutations Cause a Novel Subtype of Hemochromatosis in Patients with Neurologic Dysfunction. 
by Lena Muckenthaler from the University Hospital Heidelberg in Heidelberg, Germany, and colleagues. Hereditary hemochromatosis is a genetic disease characterized by iron overload and caused by dysfunction of the hepcidin ferroportin regulatory axis. Several causative mutations, mainly expressed in the liver, have been recognized, including the high FE or HFE protein, transferrin receptor 2, hemojuvalin, hepcidin, and ferroportin. Under normal conditions, signaling downstream of HFE, hemojuvalin, and transferrin receptor 2 induces the expression of the iron regulatory hormone hepcidin. Hepcidin is made by hepatocytes and binds to and inactivates the iron exporter ferroprotein. Unusually low levels of hepcidin are the hallmark of hereditary hemochromatosis and account for increased intestinal iron absorption, progressive iron accumulation, and damage of parenchymal organs. The most common subtype of hereditary hemochromatosis presents with an adult-onset chronic phenotype. It is highly prevalent in the Caucasian population and caused by a missense mutation in HFE. The non-HFE subtypes of hereditary hemochromatosis are relatively rare and typically present during childhood. Mutations in hemojuvalin or hepcidin cause the most severe form of iron overload, juvenile hemochromatosis. Here, Mukenthaler and colleagues studied three male children with neurological symptoms who presented with typical iron overload and organ dysfunction. Patient 1 had early-onset epilepsy, severe developmental delay and intellectual disability, and met the diagnostic criteria for juvenile non-HFE hereditary hemochromatosis. However, neurologic symptoms have not previously been described in children diagnosed with iron overload. Exome sequencing in this patient failed to detect any known hemochromatosis-associated mutations and instead revealed a constitutional hemozygous missense mutation in the X-linked PIG-A gene, which stands for phosphatidyl inositol glycan anchor biosynthesis class A. Next-generation sequencing identified two other PIG-A missense mutations in two unrelated male patients, who also presented with iron overload and similar neurological symptoms. PIG-A catalyzes the first step in the biosynthesis of glycosylphosphatidyl inositol, or GPI, anchors that are responsible for the proper attachment of approximately 150 human proteins to the cell membrane, including hemojuvalin. Somatic null mutations in PIG-A have been found in patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, a disorder of clonal hematopoietic stem cells leading to a severe deficiency of GPI anchors, hemolytic anemia, thrombosis, and bone marrow failure. Constitutional PIG-A mutations causing PIG-A deficiency are very rare and have been associated with neurological disturbances, including congenital malformations, developmental delay, intellectual disability, and epileptic seizures. The neurologic phenotype is generally attributed to the impaired attachment of GPI-anchored membrane proteins involved in brain development. However, constitutional PIG-A mutations have some residual activity and so are not associated with PNH symptoms. In the current study, investigators hypothesized that iron overload in the three cases of juvenile hemochromatosis with PIG-A mutations could be caused by the inability of GPI anchors to attach to hemojuvalin, 
and the subsequent failure of hepatocytes to induce hepcidin expression. The authors performed a CRISPR-Cas12A-mediated knockout of pig A in a hepatoma cell line and analyzed their capacity to control hepcidin expression. They found an almost complete lack of hemojuvalin surface expression in pig A knockout clones, while hemojuvalin was detectable on the surface of pig A wild-type cells. Interestingly, pig A clones not only lacked hemojuvalin, but also showed reduced levels of ceruloplasmin, an enzyme required for efficient cellular export of iron and also attached by a GPI anchor. As expected, only the wild-type cells showed an upregulation of hepcidin in response to hemojuvalin. Furthermore, simultaneous transfection of hemojuvalin with a pig-A expression construct successfully reinstated hepcidin expression in pig-A knockout clones. However, expression of the mutant forms of pig-A identified in the patients resulted in significantly lower hepcidin RNA levels. Based on the data from rescue experiments, the authors concluded that the missense mutations in these three patients retain a higher residual function compared to patients with more severe constitutional pig-A mutations, allowing for a milder neurologic phenotype and sufficiently long survival for the patients to develop iron overload. The findings also call for clinical assessment and treatment for potential iron overload in other patients with constitutional pig-A mutations. In an accompanying commentary, Andrea Steinbecker from the University Hospital Frankfurt in Germany emphasizes the importance of this newly discovered link between GPI-anchored hemojuvalin and ceruloplasmin defects and an iron overload phenotype with neurologic symptoms, which uncovers a new form of hereditary hemochromatosis. She suggests that an additional classification of pig-A-mediated juvenile hemochromatosis is needed to describe this novel subtype, where not only hemojuvalin is affected by a defect in GPI anchoring, but also ceruloplasmin, a membrane-bound ferrooxidase, as well as brain-associated GPI-linked proteins. Steinbecker is hopeful that future translational studies will offer new diagnostic and therapeutic pathways for this form of juvenile hemochromatosis, with a focus on delivering pig-A to correct the hemojuvalin deficiency. This could potentially be done using CRISPR gene editing technology with a lentiviral vector, delivering the wild-type pig-A gene directly to hepatocytes, as has been proposed for other liver diseases. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Phase 2 Study of Obinutuzumab, Ibrutinib, and Venetoclax in Patients with Untreated High-Risk Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia by Henriette Huber from the University Hospital Ulm, Germany, and colleagues. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, is the most common type of leukemia in the Western world and mainly affects elderly patients. Chemoimmunotherapy is the standard of care for CLL, but its efficacy is limited in high-risk subgroups. The prognosis is especially poor for patients with high-risk CLL with a deletion of chromosome 17P and or a TP53 mutation. Studies to date have demonstrated that these patients have lower remission rates, shorter remission duration, and inferior survival compared to patients without the genetic alterations. 
Phase three trials have consistently demonstrated the efficacy of three classes of novel CLL agents, the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, and obinutuzumab, a novel humanized anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, leading to improved progression-free survival in CLL compared to standard chemoimmunotherapy regimens and an increase in overall survival in certain studies. However, these improvements were not observed in high-risk CLL patients with genetic risk factors. Currently, ibrutinib and venetoclax are approved in combination with obinutuzumab for the first-line treatment of CLL patients in Europe. For patients with DEL17P and or TP53 mutation, the European Society of Medical Oncology Guidelines recommend venetoclax monotherapy obinutuzumab venetoclax combination, or ibrutinib. The ongoing CLL2-GIVE trial combines all three agents, which have distinct mechanisms of action, and investigates the safety and efficacy of this combination therapy in the hope of achieving more durable responses and longer-lasting remissions in patients with high-risk CLL. This trial is an open-label multicenter study conducted at 11 German medical centers. The current paper reports on the early findings for 41 adult patients with previously untreated CLL with DEL17P and or TP53 mutation treated between September 2016 and August 2018. All patients received an induction phase with the triple combination of obinutuzumab, venetoclax, and ibrutinib a six-week consolidation phase with ibrutinib and venetoclax, and a maintenance phase with ibrutinib monotherapy, depending on the patient response and minimal residual disease level, evaluated after cycles 9, 12, and 15. Undetectable MRD was considered as less than 10 to the minus 4, that is, less than 1 CLL cell per 10,000 leukocytes. Complete remission rate at cycle 15, which marked final restaging, was the primary endpoint of the trial. Secondary endpoints included minimal residual disease, progression-free and overall survival, and safety evaluation. All 41 enrolled patients were included in the safety and efficacy analyses. The study met its primary endpoint with a complete response rate of 58.5% at cycle 15. At final restaging, 78% and 65.9% of patients had undetectable MRD activity in peripheral blood and the bone marrow, respectively. Interestingly, both the estimated overall survival and progression-free survival rates at 24 months were very high, namely 95.1%. A safety analysis found that the majority of reported adverse events were low-grade. Only 23.9% were grade 3 or higher. Two patients died during the study one due to cardiac failure and the other due to ovarian cancer, but neither event was related to the study treatment. Taken together, these findings demonstrate that the triple regimen used in this trial demonstrated good efficacy and a manageable safety profile in patients with high-risk CLL. In an accompanying commentary, Marwan Kwok and Tatiana Stankovic from the University of Birmingham in the UK, note that the findings of Huber and colleagues represent a major clinical advance in the management of CLL with a powerful new triple combination that can be readily deployed to improve the outlook of patients with DEL17P 
or TP53 mutated CLL. Presented findings compare favorably with the frontline venetoclax plus obinutuzumab from the CLL14 trial that yielded a 68% peripheral blood minimal residual disease negative rate and an approximately 70% two-year progression-free survival in the same group of patients. However, Kwok and Stankovic also note that notwithstanding the excellent two-year progression-free survival, multiple relapses were observed at 24 to 34 months shortly after stopping treatment. This begs the question of whether 10 to the minus 4 CLL cells is a sufficiently low MRD threshold to allow treatment cessation in this high-risk subgroup of CLL with heightened genomic instability to TP53 mutations. They also caution that future prospective randomized studies should determine whether triplet therapy is indeed superior to dual or single-targeted agents and whether treatment combinations incorporating second-generation BCR or BCL2 inhibitors will further improve the outcomes in this group of high-risk patients. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.